Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewurz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and our guest on this episode is the CEO of USA Surfing, Greg Cruz. We'll be talking with Cruz about the sports debut at the Olympic Games in Tokyo and the years of planning that went into having the four athletes on Team USA compete for medals for the first time. It's an engaging conversation that includes everything from a jacuzzi being shipped to Japan to Cruz's thoughts on how to get more cities involved in hosting a sport that traditionally has been limited by its very nature to the coasts. But before we begin, here's a word from the sponsor of this episode. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports event or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now, on to the conversation. Greg Cruz is no stranger to surfing. He's been participating in the sport since he was middle school aged and was on one of the original high school surf teams in Huntington Beach, California, that was part of the genesis of the National Scholastic Surfing Association. He later became active in the administration of the sport for years, reorganizing Surfing America into USA Surfing when the organization earned national governing body status in 2017 in the lead up to the Tokyo Games. Surfing may be new to the Olympics, but it's of course not new to the sporting world. The question for surfing, though, like other new entrants to the Olympic program, like skateboarding and climbing uh, that have their own unique cultures, is how the sports would adapt to the international requirements that the Olympics demand. The answer is that they adapted very well. Carissa Moore earned gold for the U.S. women, becoming the first athlete to win gold in the sport at the Games. And while there were early concerns about the surf itself, it turns out the waves were just fine for competition. Getting to that point, however, was another challenge entirely, one that involved real estate negotiations for the camp that the U.S. team called home and logistics that included shipping containers and even a jacuzzi for Team USA athletes that needed to somehow get to Japan. In this conversation, we talk with Cruz about how all of those logistics went down, how cities can get involved in hosting more events, even if they aren't near an ocean, and how the sport intends to capitalize on its new wave of momentum. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Greg Cruz, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's nice to connect with you. Surfing, of course, just had its debut at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, and a successful one, it seemed, at that. So would love to talk with you about your experience there and about the high profile that the sport received here just recently. But I thought before we even get into all of that, Greg, let's start a little bit with you and, and your background in the sport. I know you've been involved for years in different capacities, but what drew you to the sport in the first place? How did you get to this point leading what has become the national governing body of the sport? Uh, it, it's actually kind of an interesting story with lots of uh, twists and turns, so I won't bore everyone with all the details, but <laughs> Basically, I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, and uh, it was the 70s, early 70s, and I was got out of the elementary school and into middle school and kind of tried to reinvent myself from the nerdy, uh, nerdy kid to the cool kid in the interim and started getting in a little bit of trouble. My dad was president of the school board and uh, getting, getting uh, feedback back from teachers and stuff that I was kind of acting out. So uh, he's like, hey, you know, we need to get more involved. Let's do something together. You know, what do you want to do? 
And I was like, I want to learn how to surf. So uh, <laughs> we ended up getting me aboard and he'd run me down to the beach every weekend and, you know, starting from uh, 11 years old on. And it was just instant love. I'd been involved to various degrees in, in uh, playing, trying to play football and wrestling. And every year they have the two a days in the summer when you're trying out for the team. And that yeah. coincides with the big South swells here in California. And so I'd have the, you know, the lure of the surf pulling me away from practice. And then I'd try to show up again to football practice and they weren't having it. Right. You know, so I, you I don't show imagine. up, you don't go, <laughs> but surfing is one of the most difficult sports to learn. And it's, very athletically demanding, uh, more so than any sport I've ever participated in. And I always felt like like surfing didn't really get its due. Um, there's always the stereotypical surfing image. And, and back in the 70s, surfing was an outlaw sport. You know, it was it was very much counterculture. And, and uh, you didn't want your daughter dating a surfer back then. So... <laughs> which, you know, kind of be nice if it were like that now and less crowded and what have you. But um, you always had to meet the parents and explain to them like, hey, yeah, I'm a 4.0 student. And, you know, we're not all the stereotype, right. you know, don't do drugs. Um, we get up early in the morning to serve. Um, so we had uh, at our high school, we had uh, started a surf program. And uh so I was the teacher's assistant for surf PE, which was an elective in the summer for summer school. Not a and lot of high schools offer uh, surfing as, as PE. No. So that same uh, instructor's name's Tom Gibbons. I still talk to him to this day. He and got together with four other local high schools in the Huntington Beach area, Fountain Valley High School, Edison High School, Huntington Beach, and Marina, and formed a league. And actually got California Intramural Federation support. So it became a CIF sport. So we we had surf teams. We we had uh, competition amongst all the schools. And we actually got Letterman jackets, much to the chagrin <laughs> of the uh, football team. Yeah. So um, that was kind of, you know, seeing surfing get its due. Tom and, and some of the other coaches went on and started the National Scholastic Surfing Association, which continues to this day. But that was kind of my first early days introduction into uh, surfing organization and surfing events and, and really just, you know, always wanted to share the sport and the beauty and athleticism that, that goes with it and kind of try to change the bad stereotypes. Sure. Well, you, uh, of course, you went on to be involved with a number of organizations, including Surfing America, which eventually turned into USA Surfing once the uh, the sport became onto the Olympic program. But right. I, I want to touch on something you said earlier, Greg, sort of this notion of surfing always had its own culture, has always kind of been its own thing. What were your thoughts, you know, as that discussion was beginning about maybe adding this sport to the Olympic program? Uh, I guess there's always that question with some sports, especially one like surfing. It was so well established and has so much identity and culture, you know, this question of did surfing need the Olympics? I mean, what, what, right. what was your thought there? Well, I, I was an avid snowboarder. I've been snowboarding since 1990. So I went through that culturally within snowboarding. And uh, one of my favorite sur uh, snowboarders at the time, Terje Hawkinson, was totally anti-Olympics for snowboarding. And he actually divided all the pro surfers, I mean, excuse me, snowboarders into two camps, right? Pro Olympic or, you know, anti-Olympic. 
And so the the group of snowboarders that actually went to the first Olympics, some of them weren't the best because a lot of the best snowboarders held out and, and boycotted. But after the first Olympics and they saw how special it was and they heard the stories come back from those that did go, then the following Olympics, all that resistance was gone pretty much. And, and everyone was all in on it because it's a great experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to hold on to their snowboarding culture. And, and actually, that's what was so appealing about snowboarding in the Olympics from the, the viewer standpoint is you really got kind of a, a little bit of a snapshot of, of what it's like to be a snowboarder and and their lingo and their camaraderie and all that. And I think that same thing came across in both surfing and skateboarding at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Um, Mm -hmm. Skateboarding is more still goes with the, you know, kind of an outsider outlaw sort of sport, kind of a, not really anti-competition, but anti-formal coaching and, and they don't, you know, they don't want to run it like a traditional sport and they want to, my grandson's a great skateboarder and, and I take him to the park and I just see the group of kids, they all just push each other, right. By trying tricks and playing skate, which is like horse with tricks. And, right. and so I, I see how that progression happens there, but, but surfing's different. If you're not coached in surfing, there's stuff you couldn't learn in a lifetime if someone didn't tell you. And it's not like you have the repetitiveness of you know, being able to do the the same maneuver on the same, whatever it is in a skate park, uh, in surfing. So surfing turned into more of a jock sport than skateboarding early on. Um, mm-hmm. for, for the last 15 years, surfers have had coaches and trainers and, and, you know, really, really gotten into to training like other athletes would for their sport to get the competitive edge where I think a lot of that happened in skateboarding too, but they, they like to hide it from the public and, and, uh, but the coaching aspect of skateboarding still is, uh, is something that's not part of that culture. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, let's yeah. talk a little bit about Tokyo, Greg. I mean, you had, uh, four athletes uh, on the U S team, two men, two women, and on the surface, you'd think, well, that wouldn't be too difficult getting four athletes uh, over to Japan for the Olympics. But I know that nothing was easy. Uh, I was there myself uh, and went through yeah. that process. So let's just talk, I guess, first logistics. I want to talk with you a little bit about the competition there. But sure. let's uh, start with some logistics of what the experience was like for you, you know, leading uh, USA Surfing and just getting everything set over there for your athletes. I know surfing, like a lot of the other, uh, not a lot, but some of the other sports had your own, you know, sort of training area that you set up, but how far in advance, Greg, were you in Tokyo planning for this? What was that experience like for you? Well, as soon as we were announced as a sport and we got our NGB status as USA Surfing from the USOPC, USOC at the time, I began planning. There's a gentleman by the name of John Amori, who used to be in the uh, gymnastics program. He was in the 80s. He was from Torrance. He'd moved to Japan and been involved in the financial markets for years and kind of hit a midlife crisis and wanted to get back involved in surfing and in the Olympic movement. So when he heard that you know the Olympics was coming to Tokyo, he, he called people he knew at the USOPC and it's like, hey, if anyone needs help, let me know. And so he reached out to me. He flew out. He met us at one of our events. He had a bunch of maps and hotel guides and all this stuff. And he basically pointed out that 
we're holding our event in a super rural area that doesn't have a lot of options and that during Tokyo, during the Olympics traffic, it could be two hours each way getting to and from the athlete's village. So he had me out to visit sites in 2017 and uh, we found what what's the the best uh, accommodations there at this place called Pension Third Place. The owner, you know, everybody, you know, going into the Olympics, they they think they're going to get rich off of it. And and the owner had high expectations for what he'd be able to rent his property for. But we went back multiple times, surfed with them, built a rapport, you know, met met the surfing reps from the Tokyo Organizing Committee and uh, kind of negotiated back and forth with him. And we ended up you know, being able to negotiate a price to use the, his entire place for the duration of the Olympics. And Greg, what kind of place was that? Was it a, was it a house or? It's a pension. So basically it's sort of a cross between a, a bed and breakfast and a youth hostel kind of. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's nicer than a youth hostel, but there's nine rooms in it. And a lot of them, you know, there were like three beds in each room and you rent a bed, you don't rent the whole room. Um, right. So that's where it's kind of like a hostel and then a big common area. And they have all, all kinds of, uh, you know, bicycles and they're right across the street from the beach. And they didn't have a kitchen, operable kitchen, but they had a commercial kitchen that was just full of junk. So, I mean, it was a storage room, right? Yeah. So one of the things, one of the big considerations when you're in a satellite area where you have to control, you know, the coming and going of people and, you know, watch your athletes was you know you want you want them in the house you want to be able to feed them proper meals you know good food without having to go out for a restaurant or get takeout for every meal you know we we were concerned because all of our athletes are pros on the world surf league championship tour mm-hmm. they they have their support people that are with them you know year round they have major sponsors that are you know looking for them to partake in, in uh, meet and greets and, sure. and do things like that. So back then, prior to, prior to the pandemic, I'm more worried about how, how are we going to keep them from being dragged every which direction by sponsors and friends and family and things like that. So it was important for us to have a, a good kitchen. So part of our negotiation with the owner of the pension was we'll, we'll revamp the commercial kitchen. We have a jacuzzi is a sponsor we got a shipping container shipped a jacuzzi over there with wow. a bunch of electric bikes and all kinds of goodies i mean we dialed them in from every way we could other than cash right <laughs> and uh he he, t- he actually turned the shipping container i thought he'd use it for storage he turned it into a pizza kitchen <laughs> so he's got like this beach thing that he's opening I, up I, now. I love the, the thought of a jacuzzi pizza kitchen, you know, on right. the beach. It sounds like he's got everything. Oh, so anyways, we, we managed to strike a deal. We became great friends. Um, and then with the pandemic, we luckily, we what we had was a place where everyone had their own room. We had a big common area. We had a great kitchen, great chefs. He built a recovery center. He built like a 20 by 40 garage on his old tennis court with air conditioning and we had it outfitted with everything you would need in a recovery center. We had ice baths and massage and physical therapy and, and uh, exercise therapy and every kind of massage thing you could imagine rollers and had a locker room for the athletes all customized. It was really like 
everything was turnkey and the athletes, you worry because they're each on their own program when they're traveling around the world and their rivals when they're competing on the tour, they're all friendly rivals, but they're still rivals. And uh, all the planning and preparation that went in in advance, we were able to really meet all their needs beyond their expectations. And they were all at their best and ready for the games. And our two male athletes were recovering from surgeries. One had a knee surgery and one had a high ankle sprain surgery that they were pretty, pretty well recovered from, but, but having the extra physical therapy and, and recovery area was definitely helpful to them. Yeah. Well, obviously your planning paid off for us more, won a gold medal first yeah, time that won was, a gold medal that in, was awesome. in surfing. Uh, talk a little bit about the competition itself. I know there was a lot of talk even uh, outside of surfing circles of, you know, will the waves be big enough? Is this the, the right place to be doing it? As we talked about, I was there as well. I know uh, you had the benefit of a storm that came through yeah, and gave a little hype yeah. to the waves, but what was your take on the, on the competition itself? Well, I've been, I've been to the event side eight times or so prior to the Olympics and there were waves every time I was there. And I was there in the, during, you know, the window one year, uh, you know, the Olympics window. And Sean Collins, who owned or started a company called uh, Surfline, who's, who was the official surf forecaster for our international federation, he had 40 years of history on the surf at that beach. And so he could pull up the historicals. And there was an, only a couple of years out of 40 where there, it was completely flat and it wasn't surfable. It turns out, it had the Olympics run in 2020, it would have been totally flat and unsurfable. <laughs> so, so we dodged a bullet by, you know, with the pandemic delay. But there was a lot of rumors going on at the time that it was going to be in a wave pool in Japan. And you know, in my travels to Japan and talking to the organizing committee and realtors in the Chiba area who'd been a, approached to, you know, for property to build a wave pool a developer in Makinohara who we knew was building a wave pool. You know, he's like, I'm building a wave pool, but it's not going to be the one that everyone's talking about. And I don't anticipate it having done until after the Olympics. And I would just kind of want to ride the wave of surfing's increased interest, you know, after the Olympics. So I knew it wasn't going to be in a wave pool. And I knew the likelihood of waves within the, uh, you know, the, unlike other sports, we had a waiting period of, uh, July 25th through August 1st, where we could run the event and we only really needed to run for three days, which is what it turned out to be. So they saw the typhoon coming. It was it was a little problematic as to whether it'd be the winds would be too close to shore and you know create havoc, but they made the call to run on the days they ran and the waves were exciting and dynamic. They weren't perfect, but they were big and they were <laughs> challenging and i i think in the uh broadcast and in all the video of it you know pretty amazing what what people could do in in that kind of surf and uh we have the usopc provides a state department agent with us with every team and we had a great guy with us and he's down on the beach with us every day and he's like well i'm from ohio and i'm a good swimmer and I'm watching these girls that weigh 120 pounds paddling for eight minutes straight, getting pounded by these waves before they get out. And then seeing them take off on these monstrous like waves that are just closing out and exploding. He's like, I would be petrified to be out there. So he's like, I have a whole new appreciation for this sport. And uh, the, uh, the IBC uh, 
cameramen also. It's like we've been covering Olympic sports forever, and this is the most dynamic, amazing thing we've ever gotten the opportunity to video for broadcast. So yeah, no, it, the um, visuals looked amazing, and you touched on something, uh, Greg, that uh, you know some people may not be familiar with in the sports event industry. You guys have you know, just some of the most challenging scheduling of anybody, uh, in that you know if you're a basketball game, you pretty much are, are guaranteed you'll be able to start your game at a specific time on a specific day. But right. surfing, you were at the whim of uh, of nature to an extent, especially yeah. in a tight window like an Olympic Games. Right. And it's even tighter in, in our regular events because we're pretty much relegated to running on weekends. And so I work with Surfline as well. And I give them the places that I want to do events, kind of the regions, and they map out where the most consistent surf will be and what the likelihood of getting waves at certain times of year are. And I even look at the tide tables and make sure like there's, you know, the tides aren't too extreme or what have you. So, so we work out windows and plan our, our time accordingly. And the East coast is of the United States is much more challenging than the West, just because again, you're dependent on Northeasters or, or uh, hurricanes to generate swell there's not usually that much just background swell like there is on the on the west coast but we've been pretty lucky i think we've canceled two events in advance because we saw and this is over 10 years we saw that there wasn't going to be surf and once we one event we got skunked and had to uh, finish it on another at another event the following event so but you know you you do the best you can but it's like yeah mother nature's not cooperating you know well, at the next Olympics, Greg, in, in Paris in 2024, surfing is going to be staged in Tahiti, which is uh, only, what, 10,000 miles away from, from Paris. Yeah, so it's only on the that. other side of the world. Yeah, so are you uh, concerned at all that you'll, I mean, as we talked at the beginning, surfing certainly has its own culture and, uh, and identity, but that's one thing. Uh, it's another thing to be a part of the Olympics and be halfway around the world. Yeah, and, and in our initial conversations, they're going to put the holding period for surfing in the first week so that the surfers can go to Paris afterwards and be in the closing ceremonies. And, you know, hopefully we'll have a normal year in uh, 2023, I mean, 2024. But France is, has beautiful beaches, Biarritz, Hasegouar. I mean, there can be surf in the summer, but it's it's even more hit or miss than the east coast of Japan during that time period. And Tahiti has this break called Chopu which means end of the road. It's probably as far, far away as you can be from Papeite, you know, and yeah. it's a reef pass. It breaks a half mile offshore. It's a pass in the coral reef that they blasted out, you know, for boats to get in and out, or maybe natural freshwater makes those passes as well. I'm not as well. I'm not sure about that, but it is a bone crushing wave. It is literally a man killer. And there's not many women that surf it successfully. If you fall, you're basically, you know, have the whole ocean dump on top of you across a super sharp coral reef and cheese grate you. So it sounds like fun. Yeah, it's intimidating. And the World Surf League Championship Tour is having the women surf there. And it was supposed to be this year for for the first time in a long time, but they canceled due to uh, the uh, pandemic and the, uh, I guess, I'm not sure. I think you had to quarantine there longer and, and the, mm-hmm. the people coming from Mexico wouldn't have the time to quarantine if they didn't have a vaccine or something. But uh, so unfortunately it was canceled this year and they had some of the biggest surf ever during, during the, <laughs> the window. It's amazing to watch. So 
we're, we're working to get our, our women ready. We have some of the best women that can surf waves like that. And just so happens it's Carissa Moore and, and Caroline Marks. And, and uh, we have a lot of younger girls coming up. Courtney Conlog, who's on the tour. We have, a, we have a really good group of girls that can surf that wave. But there's not many women in the world that can surf that wave. So, right. so we'll, we'll be working on that. But it will be amazing, compelling so as challenging as the conditions were in Japan, the water was kind of a, a dirt, dirt brown because of the black sand beach churning mm-hmm. up the sand. This is crystal clear, beautiful, beautiful Tahitian mountains in the background. It'll be visually compelling as, as, as well as uh, the athleticism and the danger that truly exists there. You're listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. Nothing brings people together like sports, and no place brings people together like the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. There, you'll find first-class facilities and an experienced planning team that will make sure your sports event or esports event goes off without a hitch. And when the games end is when the real play begins, because the beach is 60 miles of endless activities and entertainment for all ages. Your event belongs at the beach. Start planning at MyrtleBeachSports.com. And now... Back to the conversation. Well, let me take you uh, just staying on the Olympic world for just another moment. Obviously, four years after that, the games will be in your backyard there in Los Angeles. And while the program hasn't been set, obviously things seem to be going surfing direction for that. But I want to ask you about another version of the sport that I know you're deeply involved with, and that's the adaptive version of the sport. Surfing is not yet in the Paralympic Games, but I know there's a push ahead, hopefully by Los Angeles, maybe to get that. Can you talk just a little bit about what's involved in that effort? Yeah, so surfing has already been accepted as a therapy, therapeutic for all kinds of disorders and and what have you. And and there's all kinds of different nonprofits specific to each uh, ailment that that takes people out in the water for surf therapy. But once you have that one-off experience, people want to pursue it more and get better at it, and then it naturally you want to compete, right? So um, we had a gentleman from the CAF come to a, a board meeting back in 2005 and, and push us, you know, to include adaptive surfing. And at the time, the, the management of Surfing America declined. And uh, I was working with an organization called Western Surfing Association on the West Coast. And it's like, well, they might not do it, but I'll do it. You know, we'll, we'll run adaptive divisions. So we had probably a, a dozen different surfers of all different kinds of disabilities out surfing you know and they they adapted their equipment and their style of surfing you know to enable them to be out in the water and they're you know just like any parasport they're just they're athletes and they're super competitive and uh they just needed the opportunity so we afforded that in the western surfing association and then our international federation the isa has also been leading the push for parasurfing adaptive surfing and they began the uh, isa world surfing games in i'm gonna say it was like 2015 or 2014 and they held it every year uh in la jolla shores and uh each year it's gotten bigger and had more countries involved and um, it's just been a great event so we push uh the amateur organizations with the U.S. to to have those adaptive divisions. WSA does it regularly. We have our uh, adaptive USA championships and team trials every year. And from that, we select our team that'll be at the ISA uh, World Parasurfing Championships. This year will be in Pismo Beach. I think it's December 
7th through 12th, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, our hope is that it'll be accepted as a parasport by LA 28. And it should be. We have enough nations participating, enough surfers in the world. And it's, it's really great to see that in some countries, anyone with a disability is kind of shunted aside in some countries. It's just mm -hmm. culturally. And uh, now to see those athletes that were kind of ignored and, and minimalized um, now become, you know, world champions in surfing and be celebrated in their home countries. And just that's just in a few short years and seeing the awareness and, and stuff that it brings is, is amazing. So yeah. it's a pretty cool program and it's, you know, we got a good team yeah. and I'd love to see it uh, be in the Paralympics in 2028. And I know Fernando Aguirre, our international federation president is, he's the one that got surfing in the Olympics. And, you know, I think that was a 25 year push on his part. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure he'll be successful in getting uh, surfing in the Paralympics. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, Greg, in the time we have left, just a quick question for you. You know, a large part of our audience are, are destinations and cities that are looking for sports events. Obviously, surfing, as we've discussed, is a slightly different situation than than any indoor sport or, you know, a sport that any city could host. But to the extent, you know, through USA Surfing and through the other uh, organizations that you've been involved with over the years, are there still new destinations out there that could be hosting surfing events? Or is it more or less, you know, you've got your established cities that, uh, you know, sort of uh, traditions on the calendar and, and, uh, and that's where these events are, are going to be headed. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, you know, all the surf breaks in the continental United States are known and some make it more difficult than others to get permits. Some actively recruit surf events because, you know, they know they're going to fill hotels and restaurants and what have you. Um, and they want to be like Huntington Beach, Surf City, USA, and what have you. Um, so really it's, it's just, um, do those, do those cities really take an interest in wanting to develop surfing and, and attract, um, the events they're, they're not huge events generally. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, I'll give the Atlantic city as a, as an example, Atlantic city has casinos, right? They have a boardwalk. They have great surf there during hurricane season. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of a well-known secret. Uh, they're trying to get more families involved in uh, in coming to Atlantic City. And so by hosting our surfing event every year for the last 10 years, they're kind of put on the map as a surf destination. The kids and the parents both have fun. It's, you know, they, they stay more days. They, you know, they're enjoying the restaurants and the hotels and the casino and everything else that Atlantic City has to offer. And surfers are influential the, the, if you look at the instagram followers of surfers versus other sports even even in the junior ranks which is the event we take um, i mean there's there's kids that are you know have hundreds of thousands of followers and and so that influence it extends beyond just you got one family to come down and spend a weekend in atlantic city it's they're telling their friends about it they're sharing it on their social media and and all of a sudden you know, you have people looking at the hurricanes or the Northeasters and like, so, oh, man, maybe we should go to Atlantic City, dad, you know, <laughs> let's go on a little weekend vacation. And 
you know, it's it really does grow tourism and, and visits from an area outside of where they where they'd ever uh, promoted before. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's good. But it's you really have to make up your mind. It's not that difficult to appeal to surfers. You have the break there, but permitting is sometimes difficult. And that's really the main thing. You know, understanding that it's not necessarily just the amount of room nights. It's it's what goes beyond that with the influence that's that the surfers have on their experience and and what that can generate down the road. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would urge people to do is is look at opening a wave pool. That's that's what's coming up in the next two or three years. There's there's probably five or six different wave pool technologies out there that are starting to prove their. Uh, return on investment and their profitability. And you see a lot of cities that have these big white water courses for kayaking and stuff. The surf facility isn't any more expensive than one of those and probably has more, you know, general public interest. Uh, Surfing is the number one aspirational sport, but most people don't get a chance to try it. So if anyone's looking at building a big recreational facility, I definitely consider adding adding a wave pool Mm -hmm. to the mix. And then you become a surfing destination. And I know that there's going to be a wave pool surf tour start where, you know, they're going to go around to the the major pools around the country with, you know, and those are big events and you can charge a gate to get in. It's not like a public beach and, you know, you have hotels adjacent and what have you and other amenities. So I think that's a big area for cities and, and visitor bureaus to consider going forward. I would agree. The technology seems to have uh, improved so much in that regard. And I know not everything is the uh, caliber of like Kelly Slater's uh, surf ranch that he has in California. There are others, uh, others right, out there. But, that... Yeah. And and the, the ones that are coming out, we train at the BSR Wave Pool in Waco, Texas. If you saw any of the images from the, the new Wave Pool in Makinahara, which was our pre-games camp uh, where we surfed, it's pretty much the exact same technology there. It's user-friendly. It's a controlled environment. You know you're going to have waves. There's lots to see and do around most of these areas that are having wave pools. So it can be a truly a family vacation. And they're going to be popping up. I mean, there's a lot of them in the works now. And uh, it's they're going to be very popular. It's uh, So I would encourage you to look into that. Excellent. Well, excellent advice. Let me close here, Greg. Just one final question, kind of tying tying things up from this conversation. As we talked about from the beginning, you had this wonderful exposure as part of the Olympic Games, you know, uh, hopefully and arguably bringing in uh, some new fans or new people who weren't familiar with the sport. What's the discussion like right now, you know, at USA Surfing on on how you build on that momentum moving forward? I mean, you've, you've had this wonderful opportunity. You're going to have it again in a couple of years here as well, and hopefully every four years after that. But it seems to me like an incredible opportunity, but how do you take the most advantage of that? Well, we have a board and a planning meeting coming up in a couple of weeks to address all that. But right now, it feels like we've come through a 10-year battle, right? <laughs> and, it, and it's been a battle. And, uh, you know, you're through the battle, you know, you're bloodied and, you know, <laughs> what have you. you take a deep breath and you're victorious, right? Uh, You had what was, you know, I think a a good showing by anybody's measure. And uh, it's, you look behind you and see, you know, the carnage of of everything you went through to get there. And and now it's kind of like, okay, what's next now? You know, we had been planning, you know, what do we do and how do we take advantage of, of a, of a good Olympic experience? 
And, you know, we, we have some things in the works, but a lot of that it's how many people are actually going to want to compete surfing. We may have increased our fan base. Maybe our national championships will be one of the sports that gets broadcast on NBC Olympics. You know, maybe not. Who knows? That could be something cool. But we also want to reach out through wave pools to underserved markets. You know, right now, surfing's on the fringe of the continent. That real estate's expensive. If you don't live there, that means you got to drive there. If you can't get to it, you can't experience it. And so that's limiting just by geography. Yeah. So we really want to, to work to let anybody that has an interest in surfing that saw it on TV have the opportunity to do it and not just a one-off experience, but make sure people can have that one-off experience. But then if they enjoy it or they 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 feel like they, they want to continue to be able to provide that to them to the point where hopefully, you know, there could be someone from the middle of nowhere make the Olympic surf team. We just want to kind of clear any obstacles that exist to uh, kind of diversifying the lineup. And I think wave pools will help that out quite a bit. Yeah. Well, a gold medalist from the middle of nowhere would be quite a story, but uh, I, know, right? know, I, I think surfing has had quite a story here, as you said, just over the last decade with its push into the Olympics. So, you know, congratulations to you, Greg, and the, and the whole team. As we talked about, it's not uh, quite as simple as just having the surfers show up on the beach. You're shipping jacuzzis, yeah. you're uh, renting rooms, you're doing a lot more behind the scenes than most people realize. And and by that measure, I, I, it certainly looks successful from the outside. So congrats uh, on all that. And obviously, we'd love to stay in touch with you moving forward to see how all this looks uh, in the future. So, you know, just job well done. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, Jason. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.